Hi, this is Chad Dull. Welcome to my Poverty Informed Podcast. I got to meet with a friend of mine uh, and help her transport some stuff from the food pantry um, back to her house. Um, and it was interesting. Um, it was a good day at the food pantry. They had a lot of meat to distribute. Um, and it just caught me off guard that, you know, sometimes I think I'm deeply invested in all of this, but uh, I had never thought about how do you get that stuff home from the food pantry. And my friend was using her luggage, actually. I was struck by the resourcefulness of a suitcase full of meat. Uh, and also at the fact that she'd be using that suitcase later this week to travel uh, to see her family. Um, and just the contrast. I don't know. I'm, today I'm thinking about that a lot of us middle class folks need to work a lot harder to get in proximity to people who have less uh, because even someone well-intended like me has blind spots and loses perspective on occasion. Anyway, uh, today I'd like to share something I wrote in February, uh, just before the whole COVID-19 thing started, um, and it's about emergency funds, um, which is a topic I'm pretty passionate about. Um, but it reminded me of uh, an old co-worker uh, who was a vice president and was a nurse by profession, uh, and when we would get too long-winded or too higher ed for ourselves, uh, she would often remark, well, the patient's dead. Um, implying that, of course, in healthcare you have to decide and you have to move. And in higher ed, sometimes we'd rather talk than decide. Uh, and the older I get, the more I'm finding that bias for action to be important. Uh, but anyway, that's the frame in my head today. And I'd like to share an article I wrote a few months back called Poverty-Informed Practice in Higher Education. It's an emergency. As I've talked more and more about the idea of poverty-informed practice, the concept has solidified around three ideas for me meeting basic needs, creating a sense of belonging, and supporting people just when they need it to accelerate their progress. I've been using it as a poverty-informed triangle for a while, but I updated it when I presented at Achieving the Dream. Instead of talking about a sense of belonging and belief, I boiled it down to creating environments where people don't just feel welcome, but rather know that they are wanted. That might seem small, but I think it's an important distinction. If you are somewhere in my age range, you can remember when we use the word tolerance a lot, talking about diversity and inclusion. When I think about that word now, it seems so patronizing to tell someone you would tolerate their differences from you. My prediction is we will feel the same way about the word welcome before too long. So our college is shifting from saying everyone is welcome to making sure students know they are wanted, especially if they have felt unwanted elsewhere. It goes beyond poverty, but it is definitely informed by poverty. Students in the crisis of poverty often feel as if they aren't really supposed to be on campus. We are going to make sure they know it is exactly where we want them to be. And it has me thinking about other well-intentioned efforts many of us get wrong. On the right side of my poverty-informed triangle is the idea of accelerating progress and supporting people just in time. Much of that support is academic, but for me, it broadens out to emergency support and basic needs support as well. I'm pleased to say there are campuses all over my state and the country with food pantries, grab-and-go food, and emergency funds to bridge the moments that prevent students from succeeding. 
But I also know we live in a culture which wants to make poverty a character flaw instead of a context. And because this point of view is baked in deep, we inadvertently build systems in opposition to their stated purpose. Emergency funds are a great illustration of how we often get this wrong, in my opinion. My college has a number of emergency funds, most of which existed before I arrived. But I'm proud to say we built one during my first semester through an internal campaign as well. My only request as founding donor was that it have the lowest possible barriers to student access. In essence, I wanted to say, if a student asks for help, we believe them and they get it. My history says this will be a difficult task. I have had to evolve on this issue over the years. 20 years ago, I bought into the idea of teaching financial literacy as a primary strategy to help students in financial crisis. I reject that idea now. I often see emergency funds coming out of offices with the term financial literacy attached to them. Let me be exceedingly clear. Financial literacy works very well for people with money. But in my opinion, it is a bankrupt concept, pun intended, for people in the crisis of poverty. You cannot manage or be literate about that which you do not have. And implying that becoming more literate is the solution transfers the blame to the person in crisis. You can see the hard wiring of blaming the poor for being poor. So when I see emergency funds coupled with financial counseling or with literacy workshops, I get kind of irate. This sort of help feels like lecturing a gunshot victim on ducking faster before you stop the bleeding. It's ineffective at best and damaging at worst. I know a number of students who stopped going for help because it felt dehumanizing. The irony is the people giving out the assistance genuinely see themselves as good people and helpers. I'm angry at myself for my attitude 20 years ago, and I'm angry at so many emergency aid programs today. So what do you do? Well, Dr. Sarah Goldick-Rabb built what I thought was a gold standard model with her Faculty and Students Together Fund, which essentially operates on a sort of rich uncle model where help comes directly to students and does not impact their financial aid. She's moved even further along with her work with Edquity right now, but the FAST Fund is still a, a, a place you can learn from. I'm hoping the faculty union at my college will explore pursuing that model or other no-barrier models, but in the meantime, there are ways to run your emergency funds better, even if they aren't gold standard. Number one, stop making people ask multiple times for help. Let's set the default to, if you have the courage and vulnerability to ask, we just believe you and get you what you need. If this makes you immediately think people will take advantage, I'd challenge you to examine your view of people. Do you really think people will abuse such a system? And if so, how many? Even if there is a percentage, is building those barriers to stop that small percentage worth telling the 95% of people who just need help that we think they are suspect and need to be screened? Do we really think there is a benefit to making them tell their story multiple times and then wait to see if they qualify? It is an emergency. That's why we call them emergency funds. The second thing I would do to improve your emergency fund is challenge us to think about how we talk about the students we serve who access these services. 
Do you know how often I've heard someone referred to as a good bet or a bad bet? Isn't that dehumanizing and awful? Can you imagine having the vulnerability to say that you need help and how you would feel if you knew people went in another room and decided if you were worthy of betting on? So, as with so much poverty-informed work, it isn't particularly complicated. It is just hard. Our choice about supporting people just in time is as much about changing our mindsets as it is about figuring out how to deliver the help. Instead of helping as many people as we can with the resources we have, we get stuck in a scarcity model and hoard resources and develop systems to decide who deserves help and who doesn't. To me, that feels corrosive and toxic. At my last college, we removed all criteria from an emergency fund for GED testing. We simply said if a staff member heard you needed help, you got it. The usage of that fund went up 500%. It strained the resources, but so what? We pursued more resources because we discovered our criteria before were keeping people from asking. If you have similar systems, you need to ask yourself the big questions. Are you trying to help? Or are you in the business of picking winners and losers? Do you believe needing help is a normal part of life? Or do you see it as a sign of weakness and a character flaw? Now, my point of view is obvious on this one. Although, as I said, it's changed. And even if you aren't entirely sold, think about all the energy and effort and resources wasted to sort out who gets help and who doesn't. What if we just trusted the people we serve and redirected that time and resources, the things we gain back, to simply making things better? That is how we treat an emergency.